First Thessalonians chapter 2. And let's begin reading there as we stand together in respect for God's word in verse 1. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come to you from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And Father, we humbly ask and pray now for just the supernatural aid of your Holy Spirit that we can continue in this time of worship in the same way we sang to worship and praise and adore you. Lord, we want to worship you now by giving you the attention of our heart and soul and mind and spirit that we can hear what your voice would say to us this morning through your word that you breathed out by your spirit. Lord, may we hear from this passage. May we hear you speak exactly what you have spoken when you recorded it for us initially. And may you make application to our hearts. Prepare us, Lord. Give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this portion of your word this morning. Bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name, in agreement everyone said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it is true that oftentimes how we live and how we conduct ourselves speaks way more loudly and clearly than anything that we can say verbally. And the passage that we're looking at this morning, I think, indicates this reality. The importance of not how we talk as much as the importance of how we walk, not just what we say spiritually, but truly measuring and observing, if you would, how we actually serve the Lord in the way we walk out our Christian life. Now, the backdrop to where we're coming this morning as we began 1 Thessalonians, Paul started chapter 1 by addressing this fellowship of believers there in Thessalonica uh, and really speaking to them, describing the power of God's salvation among them when he came and ministered there with his team, with 
Silas and Timothy. He talked about the establishment and planning of the church there. He then complimented them and praised them really for their spiritual fruitfulness, even as a very young congregation. But we noticed in verse one or excuse me, chapter one as well, how Paul also referred a few times to the conduct of himself and to his missionary team when they were there planning that church in Thessalonica. You notice back in verse 5, we saw Paul say there, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul spoke there. He said, you know what kind of men we were, he says, among you for your sake. And then again in chapter 1, verse 9, he brought up the subject again, speaking of how the reputation among other churches, he said in verse 9, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to use. So we seem to get this idea. It appears that Paul felt there was a definite need for some reason to draw attention to how they behave themselves among the Thessalonican believers when they came there in the planning of that church in their ministry and service among them, what their ministry and service was not, what they were not. And also afterwards, he mentions in chapter two, verse uh, sort of seven through 12, he mentions what their ministry was. And it seems that there were those that had arisen among that time for whatever motivation or reason, we're not told, but it just seems to indicate that there were those, as often was the case, who had arisen that were sort of trying to discredit Paul's ministry, that were seeking to just cause trouble and get the believers there to question Paul, to dismiss his credibility, and thus not to praise himself. That's not Paul's intention here in chapter 2 but really just to help alleviate false accusations in the minds and the hearing of those who he cared about greatly, which is obvious. Paul now takes some time to remind the believers there in Thessalonica exactly who he was and what they were like as they ministered among them and to address what was clearly observable when they came and they served among them and they dwelt among them for the time that they were there, calling attention to his life and his action and his conduct, which could be openly measured. It could be clearly observed. Paul says, I know what people may be saying, but look, the greatest testimony is what you saw with your own eyes. Uh, it was evident the way that Paul lived among them. It was something that they could measure, they could see as an evidence, and it spoke clearly to the truth regarding what was true and what was not of their ministry and service among them. Now, Paul's reference to these things and his conduct of service and ministry among them as believers give to us, as a result of that, some beautiful lessons of really what healthy ministry or healthy service looks like. And I bring that to your attention as we go into these verses this morning, because if you are someone here this morning that has a heart that's inclined towards ministry, if you have a heart to serve the Lord, well then listen, there are some really vital lessons here. I would strongly encourage you, if you have a heart inclined towards ministry, if you have a heart even towards pastoral ministry or starting a ministry or serving the Lord in some capacity, that you would take chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 very seriously because there are great ministry lessons that are given here for those of us who have a heart to really serve the Lord. If you're here this morning and you're a husband or a father, you are in the ministry. If you're here this morning and you're a parent, whether you realize it or not, you are in the ministry. 
Uh, if you're here this morning and you're, you're a Christian and you're a part of the local church or you live among the world, in essence, you are in the ministry. So there are great lessons here for us to learn from what Paul sets forth as he's seeking to sort of deal with some of these accusations that we can glean for our lives. Look with me beginning in verse 1. Paul's discussing this now. He's going to continue to say, you know, you know, you are witnesses, just reminding them of what it was like when he was there. He says, chapter 2, verse 1, for you yourselves know, brethren... First of all, he says that our coming to you was not in vain. So the first thing he does, he asks them to reflect on how their outreach to them and their service and ministry while they were among them there was not, Paul says, fruitless or ineffective. He says, you know, it's, it's measurable, it's evident. There are results to look at, Paul says, that are coming to you to minister there, to serve you. He says, it was not in vain. The word vain there means empty or ineffective, without profit or, or useless. Paul says, the result of our coming to you and serving spiritually in your midst did not yield something that was ineffective the Thessalonians could just recall what indeed had happened when Paul was among them ministering there and when Silas and Timothy and the team were there planning the church and serving them. It was observable. They could even look at their lives currently. I think in some ways what Paul is saying is, look, what is your spiritual state and condition now when you measure that and view that in comparison to prior to when we came and ministered among you? Look at your spiritual condition, where you're at in your relationship with God and where you're at spiritually now and view that in comparison to the time prior to our ministry among you. What do you see as a result of that? Is there any evidence of anything beneficial, the spiritual effectiveness and usefulness of their ministry? Paul's saying it, it, was, it was yielded in the results in what could be seen in the changed lives, the outcome of Paul saying of our preaching the gospel and teaching God's word among you. It wasn't without profit. Our spiritual care and ministry among you in different capacities, whether it was prayer or comfort or counsel we spoke, Paul says it wasn't ineffective. It wasn't something that yielded no worth or profit. Rather, quite honestly, the exact opposite was true. Uh, just a simple evaluation of their lives showed the resulting evidence of Paul and his team's ministry that many lives were transformed People's lives had been changed radically and helped tremendously. People, as a result of their time in Thessalonica, Paul even refers to in the first chapter, people, as a result of their ministry, had repented of lives of sin. People had turned away from former struggles with idolatry, and now they were serving God faithfully. As a result of the ministry there, people were now walking in love and serving the Lord in ministry themselves. They became a church that was engaged in outreach and evangelism in their surrounding area. And Paul references how they as well became model examples that were now encouraging other believers around them of what it meant to really be faithful and to serve Jesus in the midst of hardship and difficult times. Paul's point is that his spiritual service there resulted in lives being impacted and people being helped spiritually and people being changed and transformed. And can I say this morning, whenever... And however, we serve the Lord in our lives, in the roles that God allows us to, may that always be the result as well. 
May that always be the outcome that whatever I do to serve the Lord, however you get to minister for Jesus in your job or among your family or in the church or in the world, may the direct result be that people are helped and that people are changed and that lives are transformed and impacted. Paul says this was the case when we came there. He goes on verse two to say, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated, he says, at Philippi, as you know, we were then bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So Paul reminds as well, how when they came to them from Philippi, where they were prior ministering, that even while they were there in Philippi and then coming and serving among them, in both places they suffered mistreatment and they suffered resistance. Yet Paul says, but take note, that did not deter our faithfulness. That the resistance and the mistreatment, he said, that did not deter our faithfulness. He reminds them how when they were in Philippi, Paul says, verse 2, you remember, he says, how we were suffering and how we had been spitefully treated, he says there in the text, when we were at Philippi. Now, what he's referring to there, Acts 16 records the account is how when they went to Philippi and Paul was ministering there and preaching the gospel, part of what happened, we're told, is that there was a girl there who had a demonic spirit that was following them around and causing distraction from the work of the Lord. And Paul felt led of the Lord and he, as the spirit directed him, cast out this unclean spirit from this girl who the Bible says was giving much profit to her masters by her fortune telling. And when Paul cast that demonic spirit out of her, her masters got very angry because it damaged their business. So they didn't drag Paul and his team to the authorities and began to falsely accuse them for leading a rebellion. Acts 16 says the multitudes rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they then threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, they then put them into the inner prison, the worst area, and fastened their feet in stocks. So Paul's referring to how that was their experience as a result of ministering there in Philippi. And Paul's saying, look, we left Philippi still with the the wounds and the scabs on our back. You know, that, that as they would move around still, the scabs were, st- were still sensitive and scorned. He says, and we came to you in Thessalonica with fresh wounds from where we had just been. And one would expect, like any human being, after something like that, and the experience in Philippi being, you know, filled with suffering and mistreatment and spiteful abuse by people there, one would expect a natural response be what a person would kind of shrink back a little bit. And at that point, after being mistreated, you'd probably kind of maybe, well, why don't we just lay low maybe for the next week or two? I mean, mean, that Philippi experience wasn't too good there. So maybe we should, at least if not lay low, maybe should we just kind of tone things down a bit? Maybe we're being a little too strong in presenting the message. Maybe we should be a little softer. Maybe we could avoid some offense and avoid a repeat of the same abuse and the same mistreatment. Yet Paul is a man who was not only willing to be faithful when it was convenient, but we read here in verse two, Paul says, even after we had suffered. 
Even after we were spitefully treated, he says, yet still you know that we were still, in spite of that, bold in our God to speak to you the gospel. Because it's God's good, good news, Paul knew that he was responsible to share the message even if it did cause an unpleasant response, even if it caused offense. I think Paul came to realize, and boy, it'd be great for me and you to just accept this reality that the message of the gospel, though it is good news, will always cause offense to those who hear it. I mean, quite honestly, if it does not cause initial offense to the soul of a human being, we really didn't share the gospel. See, people don't like to hear you're wrong, you're full of mistakes, you're an imperfect person, and what you really deserve is not a good life, it's to burn in hell. Most people, well, thank you for telling me that. I feel so feel esteemed. I was looking for somebody to build up my... You know, people don't... That's offensive to the... People are proud. We're by nature selfish, proud human beings, and we don't like to be confronted with our errors. But the gospel message begins really truthfully with bad news that says you're a sinner, you deserve the wrath of God, you're going to be separated from God for all of eternity and no matter how good you think you are or how well you think you behave and how wonderful you feel about yourself, maybe even because you do your little religious routines, you're a sinner and that's not good enough and you can't fix yourself and you have an issue. That offends the human heart. But a heart needs to be offended because then that causes them to say, oh my goodness, then I need help. I need somebody to save me. I need somebody to deliver me and get me out of this and forgive me for my sins. And that's where the good news of the gospel message has its effect. And I think Paul just came to understand the gospel will always cause offense. And Paul realized, therefore, I can't let that affect my faithfulness in continuing to just speak the truth because he says it's the gospel of God. It's God's good news. It's his good news. When Paul showed up in uh, Thessalonica in, in Acts chapter 17, as he's there, we read this chapter together when we were beginning our study in Thessalonica, he again faces conflict. He faces resistance there afterwards, yet nonetheless he remained committed to keep responsibly speaking the gospel despite that mistreatment. I think that's the key there. Verse 2, I have it underlined in my Bible there. Even after, even after suffering and spiteful treatment, when others might have softened the truth to make it less challenging or perhaps given up in what they were doing, Paul remained bold, he says, in God and confident to keep speaking the truth. The question comes to mind for me is this. Where did such confidence and boldness come from? I mean, after any, who here has been beaten with rods and whipped and thrown into the inner part of an ancient prison as a result of sharing Jesus with somebody? I guarantee probably not anyone in this room. And yet, Paul, what brought such courage and such confidence? Was it because Paul is just a, he's a spiritual superhero? And sometimes we think that of Bible characters. We think, oh man, these people are like spiritual superheroes. Well, listen, unless you overly esteem Paul, realize that kind of boldness and that kind of courage amidst hardship and suffering, it comes from one source. Give the glory in the right place. It comes from the Spirit of God. Because in Acts chapter 4, you see the disciples, not Paul, just disciples generally, Christians, 
threatened for sharing their faith and those threatened disciples just like you and I prayed and said this now Lord look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word and when they had prayed the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness Hey, I think the lesson for us here is this. It's important to stay committed and faithful to doing what's right and saying what's right even when it's hard. Even when you may suffer for saying the right thing or speaking the truth, even when you may face resistance for doing what's right, you need to stay faithful. We need to remain committed to what God would have us to do and we need to seek the Lord for His Spirit's empowerment to give us that boldness and courage to carry on. Where Paul goes on, verse 3, saying, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor, he says, was it in deceit. So he testifies that the spiritual challenges and instruction that he gave were spoken not from notice, not from any unhealthy reason or some unhealthy motivation. Paul says here, We did not exhort you from error. In other words, Paul's trying to say we weren't trying to persuade you from some false basis or some unhealthy purpose or we weren't trying to lead you into error. It was evident as people knew Paul that he had a genuine basis. He sincerely just wanted to speak the truth to people. He says here in verse 3 as well, nor did we speak from uncleanness or the idea is from impure motivation. Paul says that there was no ulterior agenda behind what we were saying. We weren't saying the things that we were to try and draw you into something so we could manipulate you somehow from some impure motivation. He says, nor was our speech in deceit, indicating Paul saying we, we weren't deceiving people. We weren't telling lies to people. The, the interesting, the term he uses there is the term that literally speaks of baiting a trap or baiting a hook to catch a fish. And Paul says, That's, we weren't doing that. We weren't talking in a way and speaking in a manner where what we were trying to do was just sort of in a crafty way, sort of bait you and draw you in so we could somehow accomplish something. Uh, Paul was a genuine servant of the Lord and his ministry came from a pure heart. There was no impure motivation. And let me just say this, sadly, there are some that are and always will be participating in forms of ministry for erroneous and unhealthy reasons that's always in existence and it always will be in existence and look it is possible for people to be doing and saying the right things outwardly yet have impure motivations and reasons underneath for why they're doing what they're doing may that never be true of any of us may we never fall into that Look, I think the lesson God would have us learn here regarding serving the Lord, ministry and service is when we serve, it's not just important what we do. It's also just as important why we do it. It's not just important what we do and how well we do it. It is important why we're doing it. The reason, the motivation, motives do matter. They do matter. They matter to God doing things for the proper reasoning. In fact, the reason why we say and do things seems to be what will be tested ultimately when God evaluates our ministry. 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of that in verses 12 through 15. And as well, look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4 and 5, where those verses indicate that God measures motive. 
that God measures why we did what we did and ultimately rewards or doesn't reward accordingly. So after stating his motivation was not impure, Paul then goes on to add verse 4 saying, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, he says, not as pleasing men, but God, notice, who tests our hearts. So Paul saw himself, verse 4, he views himself as an appointed steward a steward of God, responsible to speak, notice, what God wanted declared and not what people wanted to hear. Paul saw his stewardship from God as one who was called to speak what God wanted said and not just what people wanted to hear. And there's a very big difference there. Paul says, we know that we have been approved by God the word there speaks of being tested and evaluated for usefulness and he says we have been he says verse 4 look at it entrusted key word entrusted with the gospel that word entrusted implies stewardship and again a steward was someone who was responsible to manage the resources of their master what they managed did not belong to them. It belonged to someone else. They were just entrusted with the responsibility to manage what did not belong to them and to faithfully utilize what was entrusted to them in such a way that they would achieve the maximum benefit possible for the one who had entrusted it to them. And Paul says, this was my role, this is our role as Christians with the gospel. He viewed himself as a steward of God as it related to handling this message of the gospel of salvation in Christ. He saw himself as having been entrusted with speaking and utilizing this message of salvation from God. And I think he took that very, very seriously. And I think we should take that very, very seriously. Paul knew it was not his right to modify the message. He knew it was not his right for any purpose or reason to even improperly utilize the message of the gospel. And that realization that God had entrusted him with this sacred eternal message of how people are saved and how people come to know God, I think that kept Paul very keenly aware of his accountability to God for what he said and how he presented it and that he would one day answer to God for that stewardship of what he spoke and how he served. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards, he says, of the mysteries of God. He then adds this, moreover, verse 2, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Take notice of that. God's given to each and every one of us a stewardship as a Christian. We now know the gospel because that message has saved us. And we have a stewardship now to, to care for that message and to utilize that message in sharing it with others. And, and we have callings and responsibilities and opportunities that God's given to us to serve in our marriages, in our families in our places of employment or in the world or neighborhood where God puts us and within the church and God gives us a measure of stewardship. The question is, is how do we handle that stewardship? The Bible says it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. It doesn't say it's suggested. It's suggested that you should try and be faithful. No, it's required. It's important 
He says our stewardship from God is something that requires faithfulness. So understanding that God had appointed him and entrusted him with a stewardship, Paul says because of that, reality verse 2 or verse 4, he says even so, the idea is with that awareness that we have a stewardship, because of that awareness, so we speak, not as verse 4, pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So Paul knew it was wrong to let pleasing men or pleasing people dictate whom he spoke to and then on top of that, how he spoke to people. Paul was not concerned with the receptivity of people when he spoke to them about the things of God, nor would he ever modify the message just to get a little bit better results. Maybe if we just slightly modify the message and make it a little more of what people like to hear nowadays and we do some surveys, maybe we, we could increase the results a little bit. And, and hey, it'd be better to have good results even if we have to modify the message. Paul would say, far be that. Never. We, shouldn't, we don't have the right to modify the message because it's a stewardship. So his primary objective was what? It was to please God, to have God's approval in what he said, to speak to whom God said, and to say what God wanted spoken as a steward. And look, lesson for us again here, we have to remember we have a stewardship from God in our service. We have a stewardship from God as we speak on his behalf. And we have to guard our hearts against being people pleasers. And that's difficult. And I tell you this, it ain't going to get any easier the further we go forward. It's going to become more of a challenge to accommodate the public, to be a people pleaser and to feel that pressure. And we have to resolve in our hearts that we live and serve and minister and speak to have the approval of God and that we want God's approval. And whether that means sharing the gospel or just speaking the truth about things that are righteous or moral, that we realize it's a stewardship. And good question to search your heart with this morning is I did as well. What directs and determines your service? What honestly influences what you will say in a situation, or maybe what you won't say in the job place or in a conversation to someone? If and when we hedge and hold back in our speech because we don't want to offend or we might lose approval or popularity, when we start to do that, we're no longer pleasing God. We're pleasing men because we're letting that be the thing that influences us primarily. Paul says, verse 5, for neither at any time also did we use flattering words. As you know, he says, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. So Paul could stand before God with confidence as his witness and say, look, we didn't ever use excessive compliments or trying to manipulate people to get something from them. He says here, verse 5, we did not use flattering words. And what's flattery? It's excessive praise. It's you know, continual compliments. And such things can often be used with an ulterior motive. That's how flattery works. Flattery is an attempt to make a person feel wonderful and praised excessively to make them vulnerable to then be persuaded in a direction that you want to persuade them in oftentimes. Many times flattery is used because people know in life that if you say complimentary things to individuals, then you can then gain some access or you can begin to have a sway or control over them. If you're a long young lady, that's why you pay attention when you have an excessively complimentary man. 
Don't let him overly push you verbally to a place where you're not supposed to go. People aren't dumb. People know what works and people know how to groom and stroke verbally in certain ways, be overly positive to cleverly get what they want from people. And Paul says, look, when we spoke to you privately and when we spoke to you publicly preaching and teaching, Paul says, we didn't do that stuff. We weren't seeking to be clever in how we spoke. He says, verse five here, we didn't use a cloak for covetousness to cover up or disguise some greedy intention to get something for ourselves, he says, behaving in a way to get access to a person's resources. Paul and his ministry, it was not in it for financial benefit. And in essence, I can hear Paul saying, look, we weren't working the crowd. We weren't working the crowd. And, and the truth of the matter is, I don't care whether it's the way people behave in public spheres of business and social circles or whether it's even from pulpits, there are some people that just work the crowd and they know how to work the crowd. And Paul says that's not something that we were doing and I think the lesson for us is that genuine service for the Lord, hear me, should never involve manipulating people. It should never involve doing things in a way where we're trying to get something from people or out of people. Rather, we should be investing into people, seeking to give rather than to receive. Verse 6, Paul goes on then to say, Neither as well, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from other people. Paul says, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So again, Paul and his team, he says, look, we weren't seeking admiration. We weren't looking for praise or applause, nor would we as well, he says, verse six, abuse our role as apostles for our own personal benefit. He says, we didn't seek glory. The idea is attention, accolades, and getting admiration or applause. Paul says, as a team of ministers, we weren't doing things whereby we were looking to be perceived as so special. Wow, you're really special. You're so spiritual. Or, wow, you guys are so gifted. Or, wow, you just, I mean, to watch you, I mean, you just, and look, the reality why Paul realized this was wrong and unhealthy is, let's be very candid, some people, truth be told, seem to have a deep psychological need to be recognized and to be approved in front of others. And there can be a very subtle thing where all of a sudden people behave in a way where they're driven by a mentality of a performer and life's just like a stage constantly and so everything in regards to how they behave and what they do it's always about the presentation it's always about the presentation of what's the reception I'm getting in front of others am I being admired am I being you know in a sense you know uh, sort of you know getting accolades for what I'm doing and always looking for the positive response and there's almost a deep psychological need that I need to get a sense of positive response from onlookers and this is sad to say but I, I really think that this can happen in ministry I really think as, as, as a pastor and as ministers and servants this is a really slippery slope that we have to be careful of all of us that we don't serve in a way where we want people to just perceive us as spiritual or we don't want to speak in a way where people are so impressed with how well that we can speak we have to be careful. We, we don't want to ever seek glory that belongs to God. And this is a, a fleshly craving. We all love a good pat on the back. You know, but the amazing thing is, is you know, one or two pats on my back and my head implodes. You know, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. You, you pat somebody on the back and their head swells. 
kind of a unique way we work, but we're all prone to this. And Paul says, God deserves the glory. We weren't seeking glory from men. And he says, nor would we as well as apostles make demands as apostles of Christ. Even though Paul had a spiritual gifting and a role with authority attached to it spiritually, Paul could have come and tried to indicate who he was, but he said, you know, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't make demands as apostles of Christ trying to get special privileges or entitlements. Interesting that word make demands there Paul used when he says we wouldn't make demands as apostles of Christ. The term literally there in the original language is to make one's weight felt. We would say today throwing your weight around. And see, this is something when we have a role or position or some level of authority that we have to be very cautious of and careful about, that we never throw our weight around. When we know God's given us a role, when maybe we have a position of authority in our place of employment or maybe as a husband and a father in your household or maybe even in ministry in some capacity, that you never seek to intimidate or force people to comply with your requests where you make your weight felt. Hey, you do know who's in charge here, don't you? And we begin to make demands by our behavior or our attitudes or the way that we speak or conduct ourselves where the idea is that we're sort of trying to intimidate because we have this position. And we're going to force people to comply with our requests and not respect their freedom to decide. And, and we can become overbearing or demanding as human beings sometimes. And Paul says, we sought to resist any temptation and pride to try and become demanding and force people to do things that we wanted them to do or to serve us in special ways. He says, we refrain from that. And you know, when we serve the Lord, again, let us always remember these things Paul describes in verse six, that we wouldn't be seeking glory for ourselves. We want to glorify God in however we serve. We have to be careful not to seek glory in what we do and let our flesh mislead us. And when we serve the Lord, verse 6 reminds us as well that we should never abuse our position. Whether you're a husband or a father is the head of your home, yes, lead your home, but don't ever abuse the authority that you have in your household. If you're in some capacity of leadership or responsibility, be careful. Don't allow pride to let you start to become demanding and forceful in unhealthy ways. So after speaking about what they're not, verse 1 to 6, Paul now talks about what they were in verse 7 going onward. He says, but we were, this is what we were, he says, gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. So verse 7 now and 8, Paul pictures their manner and behavior among them as the heart of a nursing mother. I mean, I can't picture a more gentle, tender, affectionate heart attitude that Paul could use here to illustrate. He says, this is what we were like among you, not demanding. He says, but we were gentle among you. That is sensitive and tender in how they related to people, showing love and paying attention, patiently dealing with them. He says, we were just like, you see what he says there, verse seven, just as a nursing mother that cherishes her own children. I want you to just put that picture in your mind for a minute. Think about a nursing mother. Not just a mother, but a mother when she has a child at that stage where she's nursing her little baby. 
and the tenderness of that, the sensitivity of that. I remember that stage with my wife and our three daughters as she nursed. I mean, just the, the affection, the tenderness. And Paul says, because of this, we didn't just impart to you the gospel of God. He says, verse 8, we imparted to you our whole lives. Just again, like a nursing mother does that very same thing. She ingests certain food or doesn't ingest certain food and then she even digests the food and then in essence, technically, as she nurses her child, she is giving and imparting her life, a part of her life to that child to help sustain it in love and to help nourish it and sensitively assist it. He uses terms here like gentleness and cherishing and affection and imparting their lives. And again, I don't think there's any clearer picture than a nursing mother with a child of total self-sacrifice. I remember watching my wife at this stage. I mean, you, you want to talk about the epitome of self-sacrifice. At three o'clock in the morning, you know, exhausted, but doing what? Hey, this child needs nourishment and, and just sacrifice, whether it's convenient or not convenient. And just tenderly, and, and again, and the thing is, is, and there's no complaint in it. It's a joy. There's such an affection. There's such a longing, such a tenderness of love for that little child that it's a privilege to pour out your life in that way and to be so sensitive and, and tender and gentle, even at times when you could be so angry or upset because you're being so inconvenienced. And I think what Paul pictures here is, he says, look, this is how we served among you, he says. We, we were like a, a, a people who had a mother. We, it's like we had a mother's heart for you. We were willing, he says, to be sensitive and caring in how we related to people. And again, I think these are great reminders for us because when we serve people, listen, there's a real need to be sensitive to people. People are fractured, man. People are broken and hurting and vulnerable. And, and many people, quite honestly, as we relate to them, sometimes the way they behave is because nobody ever helped them grow up. And sometimes they need to just be nursed along a little bit, if you understand what I mean by that. And it may feel like, and I don't mean this to be crass, like they're sucking the life out of you. But that's okay. Because maybe that's what they need for a while. Maybe that's what they need to be nursed and to be gently helped in the season that they're in. They need to be treated tenderly and nursed along and loved. And it may require some sacrifice of ourselves, but if that's what supplies what they need then we should be willing to do that like that dedicated nursing mother. Hey, okay, I, I'm just going to have to, I'm going to be patient here. I have to gently, patiently nurse them along. Give them the benefit of the doubt. They're struggling and just nurse them along for those time periods. Sometimes that's a part of serving people God brings into our lives. Paul says then, verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we then preach to you the gospel of God. So as Paul came into the area there to plant the church, again, could have made demands as a preacher and apostle that they support him or but yet he opted instead verse 9 speaks of to make personal sacrifices to labor and toil to do whatever was necessary Paul says so that we would not be a burden to any of you it seems this was Paul's sort of protocols he'd go into an area as a church planner as a mobile missionary always moving around Paul would go into an area and work his trade as a tent maker to supply his needs and preach simultaneously and the main reason is because he did not want to be a burden on new works as they were growing and developing he wanted to keep the people from ever thinking he was in it for the money in any way 
So Paul would take this approach and he was willing to work hard, to labor and to toil and to do whatever was necessary. He trusted God would provide, but he wanted to do whatever was necessary to not be a burden. And I'll tell you, as we avoid being a burden on people, it allows us to have greater opportunity to be a blessing to people and to give to them. And I think these verses, Paul here, verse 9, describes really what, what ministry looks like. Those are terms. If you want to be in ministry, Paul gives you a good description. Labor, toil, night and day, willing to work hard and to be a servant in whatever ways it's required. Verse 10, he says, And you are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted you and comforted and charged every one of you, now Paul says, as a father does his own children. So take note, Paul here next calls to mind how not only did they have a mother's heart, but he says we also behaved as we served you in a fatherly way, providing a good example, he speaks of in verse 10, and then speaking what was helpful in verse 11. Just like a mother and a father are the best balance to raise a child properly because they both supply vital contributions in ministering to people, there is a need for balance in how we relate to them. It's good to have a caring, loving, motherly heart towards people and to be affectionate and gentle and tender, but sometimes there's a need as well to be a little more strong and firm like a father and to bring maybe uh, some strength and, and love in a way that's a little more firm. Paul says, we also served you as a father with his own children. Verse 10, he speaks of how they provided a good example as a father does, he says, his own children. He says, we behaved in a way that was devout and just and blameless. He says, you remember, we behaved devoutly in your presence. That word means showing devotion. To be devout means to show commitment. Paul says, we demonstrated what it meant to be committed and devoted. He says, we behaved in a way that was just. We showed you how to do what was right. And at times we made hard decisions and we held the line even at times when there was temptation not to. And he says we were blameless. That is not subject to guilt. There was no double living. There wasn't hypocrisy or a lack of integrity. And I'll tell you, how a father behaves in the presence of his children is crucial. It is absolutely crucial. The example and that influence that a child needs from a father is so far-reaching. And the impact that it can have, I, I firmly believe that if a father shows children how to live and how to do life right and properly, that will speak louder and clearer than any other voice and message that's being sent into a child's life. If a father is willing to behave in a way to show, look, this is what it means to be devoted. And this is what it means to live justly and to conduct yourself blamelessly and not to demonstrate duplicity, but to be faithful and have integrity and consistent. And you know, what a wonderful thing as fathers if we can show that to our children. And what a wonderful thing, truth be told, if all of us can behave in these ways, and I'll tell you why. Because if we behave in the way Paul's describing there in verse 10, like a father giving a good example, if we behave in those ways, those kind of things draw respect. When you behave justly and devoutly and blamelessly, that's going to earn respect of people who are observing you. 
And I'll tell you, always remember this. The more someone respects you, the more they will receive from you. And the less they respect you, the less they'll receive from you. But if you can earn the respect of people, you will also earn the receptivity in being able to invest in their lives. Paul mentions as well in verse 11 how not only did he set a good example, but also fathers are instructors and teachers. Notice he says in verse 11 there, you also know how as fathers with children we exhorted you and comforted and charged every one of you. So he saw that need just like a father speaks into the life of a child to help them grow. Paul says we exhorted you. The term there means to bring alongside for instruction. It's the opposite of just barking orders from a distance. It speaks of mentoring, training, bringing alongside in a way that would give instruction. He says also, like a father, we comforted. That term there means to encourage or stimulate to perform an activity that should be performed. And the idea here of comforting or encouraging is is after a struggle or a fall, it's like the picture of a father saying, now come on now, you can do this. Get up, brush the dirt off. You're, you're okay. Dry your tears. I mean, you try that again now. Come on. And just that comfort and encouragement that's needed to encourage a young child to keep going, to not just give up or throw in the towel. And he says at times also we charged you. That's a term that speaks of being more stern and firm. It speaks of willingness to reprove or correct, to almost command obedience with a firmness in love. And again, sometimes we need to love people not just tenderly like a mommy but sometimes people need a fatherly role in their life as well and sometimes there's the balance in serving and ministering where sometimes people need a little strength or firmness to help stay them on track and to help keep people on track and Paul saw this beautiful balance what was the goal of it all verse 12 that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The goal of all these things was to help people walk consistent with their spiritual calling in Jesus Christ. Paul wanted, just like raising a child to become a quality individual, takes what, parents? Investment. Continual investment and training and effort and consistency. Paul realized spiritually the same things required in helping people develop. And may we as a church be people who want to help people develop and walk worthy of the high calling of what it means to be a fruitful disciple of Christ. May we be people who are willing to invest in people's lives for the glory of God. Let's stand together. Let's pray.